Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today.
and she's looking down like, oh my God, <laughs> this is so embarrassing. Um, so Hafsa is the author of Zero the Basketballer Says Inshallah, also a student, a researcher, a presenter, and a creative who dedicates her life to changing narratives and creating a more inclusive community. Then we have Abby Fellows, who is an agent at the Good Literary Agency, which was co-founded by Nika Shukla, you might know him from The Good Immigrant. And Abby specifically looks for commercial as well as children's and young adult books, both across fiction and non-fiction. Come on. <laughs> um, and then we have Asma Eason. And when I was trying to find a Muslim woman in publishing, everyone was like, good luck. You're not going to find one. Um, publishing is known to not be a very diverse industry. And we did find our own very unicorn over here. Um, so Asma is an assistant editor at Puffin at Penguin Random House. And she works with brands like Tom Fletcher, Doctor Who, Roldal, as well as developing Puffin's non-fiction publishing. And then we have to my left, uh, Yasmin Rahman. Um, Yasmin, Yasmin. She said I can call her either because call this is what the industry does to you, you know? Um, and she's author of All the Things You Never Said. Yasmin has not one, but two MAs. Mashallah. One is... It's not what my mum says. <laughs> um, an undergraduate English literature. Um, one in creative writing from the University of Hertfordshire and one, another MA in writing for young people for, from Bath at um, Bath Spa University. Right, I'm going to start you off with a really easy question of what are you currently reading or what was your last read? You can take it away. I... Do I have to turn it on? Yeah, okay. Hello. Okay. Um, I am very bad, and I don't read as much as I should. I mean, I've been in a very bad reading slump for a long, long, long time. Um, I'm very lucky to know a lot of writers um, from my MA, so I read a lot of their first drafts and books that are coming out next year. And I get to get a sneak peek on that, which is very, very nice. Um, one I'll recommend to you is by my friend Nizrana Farouk, who is a Muslim woman. It comes out in January. It's called The Girl Who Stole an Elephant. Very, very good. Um, I think, first of all, can I say I've got a bit of a cold, so my voice is going to be weird throughout this whole thing. Um, but same as you, um, I should read more, but I don't. I know, I know. I've got too many manuscripts, but the last thing I read was um, With the Fire on High by Elizabeth Acevedo. But it's um, about this girl who's Puerto Rican, half American, um, and then she, she's a teen mom, and she's raised by her grandmother, and then she wants to be a chef, but... She can't because, no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to read a huge amount of manuscripts for work, um, but I have, um, I've just read actually the Bernadine Evaristo, one of the co-winners of the Booker Prize, um, which is a fantastic novel. I highly recommend it to everybody. Um, I'm going to copy everyone. I have a cold. <laughs> and, uh, I also don't read, um, but I'm a uni student, so... Uh, quite recently, we're working on um, an essay surrounding um, sort of looking at contemporary events and how the hijab is portrayed and using um, sort of political writers to discuss 
those events. So one of the writers that I'm looking at is Franz Fanon and um, his ideals surrounding the hijab and what that means in terms of colonisation. I study politics, so yeah, politics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> cool. um, Hafsa, keep the mic with you. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about your book um, for the audience, some of you may not have come across it, and then also Yasmin, if you can tell us about yours. Okay. Um, so the book that I wrote is called Basir and the Basketballer Says Inshallah and it's a illustrated children's book um, and the main character Basira, she's a hijab wearing um, basketball player um, of colour and she goes on a journey towards uh, finding her faith I think and self-confidence through a, a, an event that I would say is very sort of normal in the, in the life of a child uh, but through that she also learns the meaning of the word inshallah and develops a sort of belief and faith in Allah which I think is quite nice um, and yeah well I would think it's quite nice because <laughs> Um, so my book is called All the Things We Never Said. Um, I think I should mention at the beginning it deals with um, a lot of heavy topics that people might find triggering, so have a little read of the back end if you do decide to buy it. Um, so it's about three girls. The main character is um, Mehreen, who is a Muslim. Um, she struggles with depression and anxiety to the point where she feels she can't go on with her life. And of course it's a sin in Islam, so that's what's stopping her. And she decides that to get over that, she will join a website that matches her up with suicide partners. And in that way, it takes off the burden of her because it's the other people's faults. And um, so these three girls come together through this website and they're set tasks to prepare for their deaths. And through these tasks, they build this lovely friendship. They find that these two other girls are the only ones who can understand what she's been going through and through that they find a support system which I think is very important when you're dealing with mental illness and um, they decide not to go through with it, they decide that there is something worth living for but the website that they joined up to doesn't let them get off that easy. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Do you buy the book? <laughs> um, so part of tonight is understanding about the various roles within publishing. I myself know very little and so when I was putting this panel together it was frantically Googling about what's an agent, what's an editor, what's a published house, how do you get self-published. Been very enlightened by all of you ladies. Abby, I wanted to start with you. Um, the role of an agent isn't really spoken about much when it comes to publishing. You normally think about the author and maybe the editor. Um, can you tell us a bit about your role and where you sort of get involved in the publishing process? We tend to get involved really early in the publishing process, although not necessarily early in the writing process. So uh, we tend to, to meet writers when they have got a, an idea for a non-fiction project or uh, a full uh, manuscript for a novel. And at that point, we're there to support them and give them ideas about how to shape their manuscript, how to get it ready for publication and to really become an ally <coughs> to them and to then navigate them through the publishing process. Um, and then there's lots of stages of that. So there's the, the stage of finding the best possible publisher for them. But then we're also there for everything that comes after that. So everything through choosing what the cover looks like, choosing how it, the, their book is marketed, and then supporting them through that whole process. And then hopefully working with them through their career as an ally, um, an accountant, sometimes a bit of a psychologist or a nanny. Or there's lots of different aspects of the book, but it's really being someone who supports their, their publishing career. Cool. Thank you. 
Um, Asma, you work for a huge household name, which is Penguin. <laughs> what is the typical submission process and when do you get to see the manuscript that Abby sort of puts in front of you? Um, well, the first thing is once the agent, agent usually will submit to a specific editor or a few editors that they know will like this, this genre. Um, and then and the editor will go away and read it. If they like it, they'll take it to an editorial meeting. So every other editor in the team will read it. And then if they all like it, then it goes to a thing called an acquisition meeting. This varies in publishing houses, but at, where we're at Puffin, it'll go to an acquisition meeting which has all the directors from like the MD to the sales director to the rights director. So every single person who has a stake in the book will be there. Um, and then you have to present the book and have to convince them that yes, this book we should buy because publishing is a business. So it might it might be the most amazing book, but if they can't if they can't see how it will sell and how to reach the audience, then you won't get past that stage. So once you get past the acquisition stage, it's like the easiest thing after that. <laughs> the worst thing is acquisitions, and then after that, um, then you make an offer to the agent. There might be other editors from other publishing houses that are interested, um, and then it can be one of two things where there's like a few different ways. There's a Think, you can do a thing called the preempt, which is you're the first person to be like, I like this book, can I, I'm going to tell you right, like today. You sent it today, <laughs> I read it today, can I buy it? Or you can do um, an auction, which is doesn't happen very often, but um, that will be several different publishers that are interested, and then it's exactly what it sounds like, they bid for the book. Um, or it'll just be, you go straight to the agent, and they go with you, and that's, you make the author. So it kind of varies, but, and then from then on, it's a publishing process. And how important is sort of who you get published by? Um, no bias, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, it depends because um, if you're, it's one of two things. You can either be like um, a small fish in a big pond. So if you get published by Penguin and you're not very massive, you might get lost in like all the other big authors. And if you get published by a small publishing house, you might be the most important one for them. But at the same time, having been published by someone like Penguin, you'll get the resources, the expertise, and also the connections because mm -hmm. a lot of times, um, the, for example, Waterstones buyers, publishers buyers, they decide what books will get put in the shops, right? The sales team will have a lot of close connections with them, so at Penguin it might be closer, so it just really depends on the book and what you, yourself. And I think, actually, the most important thing is if you like the editor of your book, because mm -hmm. if you think the editor can see... I feel like <laughs> if you think your editor um, has, can see the same vision as you for the book, then mm -hmm. the most important thing is to go with that editor rather than the name of the company they're with, because then they'll put as much passion and all their time and effort behind your book. Thank you. I wanted to um, help understand a bit more about the timelines of writing and publishing. Hafsa, you wrote your book in 40 minutes, mashallah. <laughs> I told you, she's one of those people. <laughs> um, and last week it sold its final copies as well, mashallah, from its first print run. How long was the timeline from when you had the idea to your book getting published and sort of being able to hold it? Yeah, so I think the timeline was about two years um, and that was because um, my publisher wasn't in the UK so the editing process was slightly longer in having to sort of have meetings at 1am because she's in Canada and things like that. Um, but I think it differs for every single person and it probably depends on the genre as well I think because mine was an illustration. Um, once the illustrations were done and then obviously the story, you know, the edits were quite simple, I think, in what we had to do. Um, so from then it was just printing and, you know, getting it shipped that took the two years. And what took the most amount of time in that process? 
probably the editing um, of the book. Because um, obviously she's based in Canada, but she sells globally. So that means that in terms of the language that's used with children, it has to be very sort of open and accessible, regardless mm -hmm. of where the children are. Um, so we just took a lot of time in making sure that the language is accessible, especially for the kids that I wanted to read it. She was obviously trying to sell it from a Canadian point of view, but as, per as a person who's based in London, I wanted to make sure that the kids here could read it too. And Yasmin, can you give us a short timeline for yourself of going from an idea to getting published and who helped you along that journey? So I'm not clever enough to write a book in 40 minutes. <laughs> Genuinely, that's amazing. Um, I started my book um, on my MA as part of my dissertation. We had to write 40,000 words of a novel. And um, I had started out the course knowing that I wanted to write a book about a Muslim girl and mental health. So I had that basis. And so I spent a lot of time trying to come up with the plot and how I could go about it. And just thinking takes up the most time for me, I think. And so I started the book maybe in earnest, February 2017. And it took about nine months, not 40 minutes, nine months for me to finish the book. And that was with the help of... Um, my tutors who are all published in um very well published and write for children and my um classmates who all got to read very early drafts and gave me feedback on that so it took about nine months to write um i edited it for about two months and then um january 2018 i submitted to agents and got my agent and we went on submission two months later which I've been told it's not very happy <laughs> space, says it all. So that's very uncommon. It normally, I think, people take um, a few months to um, edit with their agent. But um, having written it on an MA, I had already edited it so much that it was in quite good shape. And so it, we went on submission, and um, I got a book deal in March, and then I was published July the year after which I was very thankful for because the waiting is horrible. I don't know how you did two years. <laughs> And um, while you were on your MA, how did you find the storyline being received of it being a Muslim protagonist, being about <coughs> mental health? So for a lot of people, they might call that a niche sort of storyline or niche topic. How did you find that received? So I think um, I was writing it at the time that the discussion around own voices and we need diverse books was becoming a high priority. So I think um, a lot of my teachers who were all white were very much, oh, you know, brown girl wants to write oh she's gonna get so far you know how white people think any brown person will go because they're brown and so it was very much they were like okay you've tapped into a niche as you say and I was very passionate about it and I knew that there wasn't any books like I was writing so I just personally I was really excited about getting it out there um in terms of writing it I gave up on the book for um about four months um so as part of my MA, we had personal tutors and got help from other tutors on the course. Um, my personal tutor was very lovely and she was very supportive from day one of the book. But I have anxiety myself, so that was a very difficult process for me to sort of convince myself that what I was writing was good. So I had a lot of crises of confidence and it was, you know, everyone talks about how dark books shouldn't be given to teenagers or children shouldn't be reading about things like suicide because it might put ideas into their head, which is stupid. But it's that pressure of knowing that you have this responsibility over what you're writing and what you're putting out into the world. And that got to me. I had um, a tutor on my course who was the, the lead of the programme, a very well-published young um, children's writer who said to me, oh, um, I was telling her about how I was 
thinking about giving it up because it wouldn't sell and blah, 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 blah. And I said to her, oh, maybe I should write a book about terrorism because I know that it will sell and that's what the white media wants. You know, that's the gaze that they have of Muslims is that we're all terrorists. So, of course, the book will sell and that's all I care about. And she was like, yeah, 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 you should do that. And I was like, okay, <laughs> if she's telling me, then, you know, maybe I should go along with that because I knew that that is a story that will sell well. So I gave up on my book and I started writing this other book and oh. I got about 2,000 words in and I was like, sorry, <laughs> what, what am I doing? I'm completely being a hypocrite and, you know, screw her. That's the kind of books that I don't want to write. And I think it was, it was really interesting that I sort of talked myself into thinking that that's what I should mm. be writing. And I think as, you know, emerging writers, I think that's something that you need to be so careful about, mm. not giving in to what people want of you, rather write what you want to write. <coughs> there is definitely a market for it. Sorry, I went on a random tangent. No, <laughs> we welcome all rants here at Amalia. Um, Hafsa, you publish with Rufaya's Bookshelf, yeah. um, which specialises in Islamic children's books. Mm -hmm. And Sorry. you didn't have an agent, so no. between you two, you kind of covered all grounds. Mm. Can you tell us a bit more about how you went about finding a publisher, how you knew that was a good fit as well? Um, okay, so I'd like to just make very, very clear. <laughs> Your book is probably like 20, no, 50 times the size of mine. Because like, <laughs> of genuinely like a children's book of five-year-olds. Um, so that's why it took 40 minutes. Um, so I'm not a writer, let me just get it out there, in the sense of um, having sort of said from a very young age, that this is what I want to do and I'm really, really passionate. I think one of the things about me was that I just, I had a, ma a message that I wanted to get out. Um, and so once I had written, um, actually, let me talk about um, the process of writing. So I really did identify with the fact that you said that you gave up on a book and wrote something else because Basira the Basketballer was my giving up and writing oh, wow. something else. Um, and it was because I've been working on a nonfiction for about four years. Um, I think that's the correct writing, <laughs> <laughs> writing time. Um, and so this book has been something that is very close to me in terms of identity politics and just what it means to be a black Muslim woman. And I felt as if there wasn't just a, um, a limitation in terms of literature that was out there surrounding that identity specifically, but then also in terms of young people's literature and what young people are reading and what young children are reading. There isn't something that represents them um, in terms of characters and, and representation um, on a broad basis. Um, so as I was writing this four years long nonfiction, um, I think I just sat there one day and I was like, I really just want to get something out and just finish something and have that sense of accomplishment within myself and know that I can write something that people would want to read in the first place because I've got dyslexia, I hate essays even though I do an essay-based um, subject at university, um, but I just wanted to see whether or not I could do it. So Basila's basketball in 40 minutes, um, <laughs> and I gave it to my mum and she did all the grammar checks. I feel like my mum was my agent, um, and she did the grammar checks and she was like, this is all right, yeah, it's good. And she's I was like, teacher, hey, thanks right? mum. Yeah, she's yeah. a teacher, yeah, hence the grammar checks. Um, um, and then obviously she's a Nigerian, so it was it wasn't like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. It was like, yeah, no, this is yes. Right. First effort, this is great. Second one I want to see. So um I gave it to my little sister as well. And at the time I think she was like nine, nine or ten years old. Um, and I just told her to, you know, show it to her friends and see what her friends thought. And they really loved the character of Basira, and they loved how they could identify with her in more than one way, not just in terms of gender, but in terms of faith and in terms of culture. So from that kind of stage of me getting that feedback as to myself, okay, I'm just gonna Google publishers and see um, publishers that didn't have a really complicated process of like, 
getting it into a certain format and like, like, well, do you know, <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> the professionals, like, sometimes I look at the submissions process and I'm like oh this is a bit exhausting um so I just I looked for just the really simple ones and I think there was like five or six that I saw that not just in terms of the process was quite simple but also in terms of the values of the company I did quite agree and and thought that they would actually want to publish this kind of book so I just sent it out and a couple of months later got some rejections and then Rockhide's bookshelf was like, actually, wait, we're quite interested in this story. Um, and I think I cried because I just didn't understand. I was actually just like, oh, this is weird. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the things with Asma from Rockhide's bookshelf is that she was very sort of, I think you have to look for a publisher that when you speak to them for the first couple of times, there isn't an aspect of them wanting to sort of overtake your story and making something that it's not and with asthma she was very much like i can completely understand where you're coming from i really do think that this book is needed um and she was very supportive in the editing process um and so yeah from then on it was just like um i have no idea about contracts i'm still learning now so when she gave me the contract i was like yeah <laughs> i wasn't looking for anything anyway so i just sort of signed it and went off but now i'm in the process of sort of doing more children's book and obviously working harder on my non-fiction so um i think i'm a bit more conscious of what i need to do but moral of the story you don't have to be a professional to you know put your foot into the water and try and test your literature and test yourself i think without an agent it's possible and with an agent it's just easier and you'll probably get more money. Okay. Thank you. Um, talking about agents, mm -hmm. Sammy, um, what questions should potential writers be asking potential agents to essentially scope them out and how do you find your fit with an agent? I think a really key thing to ask is what they love about your work. Mm. I think you want to, it's so key to that relationship that you really feel that this person understands your work, is passionate about it, and is going to really have the enthusiasm to do it justice for you. Um, I think that's the most important, that kind of trust in them. Um, and then beyond that, thinking, I guess, a bit more head than heart, just who their network is, um, who they know. All agents are meeting publishers all the time. Uh, to find out what they're looking for and what their tastes are, so just to be sure that they, they have those connections in place, um, and to check what their vision is, so which which publishers will they approach with the book, where do they see it, what, what titles that are already on the market do they think are good comparisons, just to really ensure that you're on the same page and that this person who's effectively your voice, your representative to publishers, is really connected with your work and understands you and do it justice. Thank you. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about self-publishing, and I've got a fun fact for you for this segment. Um, so some of you may know about the book Fifty Shades of Grey, and my fun fact is that Fifty Shades of Grey was actually self-published as an e-book, and it gained a lot of traction amongst Facebook, in particular mothers. <laughs> and um, the sort of story goes that apparently one of the said mothers worked for a publishing house, and then it ended up essentially getting the rights bought to it. So, you know, just put your work out there, because you never know, you could then become international bestseller in 132 countries. But Asma, I wanted to talk to you about the realities of self-publishing, um, especially now there are so many platforms where you can self-publish. And can you tell us a bit about the pros and, and cons and your personal thoughts on it? Um, yes, um, so self-publishing, <laughs> it's difficult. It's it's kind of I don't know. You, do you 
didn't have an agent, but you did a lot of the work with the publisher, so it was a lot yeah. easier. But when you have to do the whole publishing process by yourself, yeah. as done by several yeah. different teams, um, yeah. it is very difficult, very expensive, and you might not get the same kind of um, end result. Mm. So I think, first of all, self-publishing is, I, I think if you want to self-publish your book, that's totally fine, but at the same time, a lot of times, why people do that is because they think their book's not good enough to be published by Penguin or HarperCollins or whatever. Um, so, oh, I'm going to be so negative. No, do it. <laughs> <laughs> For me personally, I would not. I would. I'll just say to you, don't self-publish your book. Mm. Um, you can self-publish it, like Fifty Years yeah. of Grey, and then become <laughs> famous, but that's not very likely. Um, it might just get lost in the sea of other books. Um, and. When you get published by a, uh, a publishing house, there's so much money that we put behind a book. You put, you have, um, you have people who work in production who are going to make the book the most beautiful book ever. They're gonna, you're gonna have sales and marketing people who are gonna go out and we, we pay like money to get it on tubes or like on buses. Not every book, but like <laughs> some books. <laughs> um, so there's so much that you're gonna miss out on. Um, but if you feel comfortable with getting your book self-published, then I guess it's personal opinion, but. I would, I would just say, as someone who works in... Ask me no. Ask me no. Thank you. It's a very negative, but... <laughs> no, yeah, I think it's worth everyone sort of knowing the, the different sides of the process and where else is... I should also add that I, I do work, obviously, in a <laughs> traditional biased. publishing house, so obviously very biased. Um, so in the last... Part of why we wanted to do this panel is because in the last few years we've seen... It's a real revolution of Muslim women getting published. Um, we've all seen so many different books coming out across so many different genres, um, and also from a lot of different uh, writing backgrounds. So, Yasmin, you've got two MAs, mashallah. Um, how did they help you in your journey to getting published? Yeah, so um, I graduated my undergrad and didn't know what to do with my life. So it was like, oh, let's just carry on being a student because I really enjoy being a student. Um, I actually studied in secret. I didn't tell my parents because they were very much, oh, you've graduated now, go get married. And I was like, no. <laughs> so um, I used to, no, this was a Bath one I didn't tell them about. And I used to, because Bath is obviously, I live in Hertfordshire, so it's 100 miles away. I'd get up at five o'clock in the morning and sneak out the house. Where did you say you were going? I, I had a job at the time, so that I, I, I didn't lie, I will say this, I never lied. If they asked me about it, <coughs> sorry, if they asked me about it, I would tell them the truth, but they don't take much of an interest, so that works for me. But, um, sorry, back to your question. Um, I think the thing that I got most with um, an MA is having um, people read your work. So the, the way that my MAs were set up was it's a small class of about eight people, and um, eight students, and one tutor who is generally a published writer or you know knows a lot about writing and so it was a very small group and it was like a safe space that you could write absolute crap and people would be nice about it but they'd also tell you sort of things that you can do better and you know this word didn't work for me this sentence didn't work for me what have you thought about doing this How, what about that kind of thing and it's just getting that much feedback is what I think really helped which you can achieve without having an MA you know just find a writing group there are local mm. ones everywhere go online there's writing groups online just find people who write the same things as you do and can read your work and give feedback that's what has helped me the most i think thank you abby um what are the common pitfalls when writers are submitting to you and trying to submit to the good literary agency 
Um, we get quite a lot of submissions by people who aren't eligible. So we have, um, because of, of our funding, we have quite uh, we have criteria about who can who we can represent. Uh, but I think general pitfalls are just people not necessarily doing their research. Um, most agents and and perhaps us more than others have quite detailed information about how to submit. So what, what we want you to send, essentially what information we need. So it's really important just to check that really carefully and send what you've been asked for, um, just, just to give yourself the best chance. Um, don't write dissers when you write to an agency fully staffed by women, things like that. But just just do your research into what, what some agents, it's about their taste. So they might not look at certain genres. They might not work with fantasy books or sci-fi so so just check all that so that you're not wasting your own time as well and do you think there is such a thing as being too niche in terms of your writing it's it's interesting sort of carrying on from the conversation because i think that um when we're talking to publishers we're always managing a very fine line between the fact that publishers are having a business to run and they want to find something that they feel confident they can take to market and it's a big investment so they're very risk averse but as agents, we want to push and we want to kind of broaden what, what can happen. And we hear from librarians and we hear from readers that they want to read certain subjects or they want to hear certain voices. So um, it's always balancing that. I think, I think when it's niche, I think sometimes uh, memoir, autobiography can be challenging because your own life story may not be as interesting to other people as you feel it is, but, but maybe it's a way to kind of, I don't mean that in a harsh way, it's just, I think sometimes it's it's about kind of understanding how to to present what you want to say, which might be really important in a way that will resonate with other people. How about you, Asma? Do you think there is such a thing as being too niche, especially sitting on the other side? Um, I think the truth of the matter is the fact that publishing is mainly white people from middle class backgrounds. So what they think is too niche is not the same that we would think is too niche. So going from that kind of um, like playing field, if you will, there are sometimes I've been in meetings where someone will say, oh, I'm not sure how we can get this to an audience, or this is too niche, or who's going to read this? I think it's a great book to have, but I'm not sure how we can get it to the audience. And um, But at the same time, the whole publishing landscape is changing, and it's changing a lot. Like in the five years I've been there, um, it's changed from being like the CEO of my old company saying things like, how are we supposed to get a black boy who's playing football outside to come inside and read to them having a BAME internship? So it's changing a lot because, again, publishing is a business and it's about the bottom line. So if you're not reaching as wide as an audience as possible, you're missing out on sales. You're missing out on lots of profit. Um, so at the current situation, I think don't let what you think is niche stop you from writing whatever you want to write. I think what you should do as writers is write whatever you like, write whatever makes you happy, whatever you're passionate about. because. On our side, we can tell when someone writes something for the sake of getting it published. Like if you write a book because you think this book did well, I'm gonna write a similar <laughs> book and not what you actually want to write. We can tell. <laughs> um, so I think for you, write what you like, and then on our side, we're doing we're trying to do better, basically. Yeah. That's, that's a nice agreement. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's the difference in approaches when writing fiction and then what, when writing non-fiction? Also, you mentioned you done fiction now you've been you're all well I mean you've been trying to write non-fiction for four years yeah um how have you approached that and also it'd be interesting to hear from the rest of the panel if there is a winning formula in terms of writing for the different ones I think like was mentioned with fiction 
because it's your imagination, there isn't sort of um, the pressure of having to have a legitimacy behind your experiences and your imagination. So with the fiction, it was really easy for me to write down and be like, I'm gonna call her Basira and I'm gonna do this and she's gonna do this. And it was all well and good. And now that I'm doing the non-fiction, I'm actually trying to rope it into my dissertation as you did as well, because I don't have time. Um, so I've like been trying to balance the sort of um, conversation of identity politics with theory and like academia that actually makes sense within the context. Um, and I don't know if that's the case for all nonfiction and you know all of the sort of genres within that, but I would say that for me there's been a test of whether or not I'm actually capable of being the one who delivers this this piece of nonfiction. Um, and I think that's very different to when you write fiction when it's like your imagination doesn't have to sort of I don't know you, you don't have to have a degree in creativity to be able to bring out. A, a fiction that people want to read, but when, it, when it's non-fiction, they'll be like, why Why are you the person who's telling me this? Um, so I think, for me, it's been reading a lot around the genre that I'm trying to step into and seeing how other people have made, sort of placed a legitimacy behind their words and behind um, sort of their story um, and trying to make sure that I've sort of ticked all of the boxes within how I creatively want to um, put my pen to paper. Can I come on in? Yeah. It's interesting that you say that about non-fiction because I'm finding this with fiction. Mm. So I think it's obviously you write for younger yeah. children. I write realistic contemporary YA. Mm. And um, there's been a lot of focus, I think, on the whole own voices thing that you should only write, you know, stay in your lane kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Don't write outside of your experiences. And so I obviously have written about a Muslim girl who suffered similar things to I have. And people automatically think it's autobiographical, which is not. But um, I've been trying to write my second book, and um, I was... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Writing um, something about domestic violence with a Muslim protagonist. And my editor asked me, you know, has this happened to you? And I was like, no, but why does it have to? You know, I think there's getting a lot more that you need to have some sort of degree of relation to what you're writing in order for it to be accepted, which I think is it's really weird and I don't like it very much. Can I? Sorry. I was, I was just going to say, I think there's, there's a huge amount of debate at the moment, um, particularly in YA, I think more than anywhere else about who has the right to tell certain stories, and it's it's the kind of constantly evolving, um, and, I, and at times sort of over-stressed, I think, that actually a part of being a writer is your imagination, and that as long as you apply it in a way that is respectful and authentic, particularly if you're writing about 
a very specific experience, then you have to think about mm -hmm. whether that's your story to tell. But um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to, to watch pan out. Um, the, the one thing I was going to add as well to this is that um, the only time I think when own voices is really important is when it, if it's like a white person write about, writing about yeah. like a minority, because the space for BAME authors and books is this is really small. Um, and I'm obviously writing a book is about imagination. You could meet people who, if you're a white person or you're a rough person, or whatever, you could meet people who are different to you, and you can write about them. That's that's normal. But this, the state of publishing is that there's not enough space for everybody. And if someone who's not who's white and who's got a very open, broad um, sp uh, space on the shelf, if you will, is writing about something that people who live those lives can't write about. I think that's a problem. Yeah. So that's the only time I think yeah. it's important to have that conversation. But anything else, um, can you tell my editor? This? Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous. But the nonfiction as well. The, the thing I would add is on trade side, um, the nonfiction should not be too educational. Like, can you tell mm. us what trade side? Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, so tra there's there's like several different types of publishing, and what Penguin and Puffin and like um, HarperCollins and the was the ones that we all know. It's traditional publishing, and it's called trade, which is. Um, commercial books, non-fiction, fiction that our people will consume for leisure. Mm -hmm. So, or, or we can have, for example, Penguin Press have like very um, quantum physics books that you can't read for pleasure, <laughs> but it's still for pleasure. I'm someone's <laughs> <laughs> I tried. That's why I'm saying it. Um, but then the the thing is, oh, I've lost my point. Yeah, so um, I would I would just think the nonfiction, the, non the the trade side with nonfiction, what can happen a lot of times is people will take a very serious topic and then deliver it in a very serious way, and anything entertaining. Mm -hmm. um, if it's boring or if it's um, too bogged down in detail, mm -hmm. it's not going to work in the nonfiction market. And especially, I work in children's nonfiction, um, and the aim of it is to get really big, um, like very serious topics but try to filter it down in a fun digestible way um so with trade is kind of it's, it's a lot more entertainment based mm -hmm. than anything else as well can i just quickly i think the the question we always ask non-fiction writers is why why are you the person to write this book mm -hmm. why is this book relevant now um and just to kind of really drill down into that and and why are you not someone else and Mike, can you um, tell us a bit about the role of an editor and, and when that editor comes in the, into the process, and especially in terms of honing that writing? Um, yeah, that's... Um, it, it's right at the beginning. So as soon as the manuscript comes in, mm -hmm. um, it'll go to an editor, and when the editor has decided this is the book they want to publish, they might start working with the writer on making it, um, making the proposal more fine-tuned to the publishing house before they take it to acquisition, or they might um, start editing um, as soon as acquired, but usually, right at the beginning, as soon as the book has come in, it's gone to the editor, and the editor will do loads of edits and go back and forth with the author, um, and at the same time, lots of other things are happening, so we brief the cover, um, the sales and marketing teams are start making, reaching out to whoever they need to talk to, and the sales team are pitching it a year in advance to the shops and stuff, so it's throughout the entire process, really. And what makes a bestseller, is, is the editor part of that? Is the publishing part of that? Is, is it luck? Can someone who is writing niche become a bestseller? What is that process? Um, I think the, the job of the editor is, especially in, depending on where you work, is to pick a book that will work 
So for Puffin, it's you have to find it, try to find the next best bestseller. So the editor has to have a, a really good understanding of the market and what works. Um, so the editor has a tiny part of it, but the it's a kind of a massive team effort. So it's it's very difficult to pinpoint specific step by step. But usually, if a book, it could be any book. It doesn't have to be. It could be as niche as possible. But if everybody in house. That's the thing about a book is if you if it's something you're passionate if you've written something you're passionate about and everyone gets really excited about it, then the job is a lot e easier to get to a bestseller. So mm. everyone in house, so everyone in the publishing office, and when they all get really excited about it, everyone's going to do as much as they can to get it to the number one bestseller. Because it, it's also like, I I I think it's hard to put into words sometimes because it's not like a specific thing. It's like a feeling. Like mm. it's like everyone, oh, this is the book. This, this, <laughs> this one. Let's give it everything. So that's one of the things. It could also be before the book has been published and go to an auction. So it'd be it might have seven publishing houses have bid for the book. So then it's already on in everyone's radar. Mm. But it's kind of it could be luck as well. So it's lots of different mm. things. Thank you. I wanted to talk, a, we touched a bit on representation of missing characters and sort of creating missing characters. Some of you might have seen the trailer that um, Apple TV put out yesterday about a new um, Apple original that they're putting out. Mm -hmm. And um, it features a young Muslim girl navigating her dual identity. She's a hijabi. And then one of the scenes is her kissing a white boy. And, Finding it and all the, all those things and, and it got a lot of backlash mm. on Twitter because people were kind of like, can we kind of not keep having the same story of where this like young Muslim girl finds her liberation through this white boyfriend and her family to know and all of these things and can we just have a bit more range? Um, Hafsa and Yasmin, you obviously both have two a Muslim protagonist in your stories. What was it like carving? Um, that character and you you sort of mentioned how you almost came to a point of writing something totally different how did you did you have that at the back of mind of like making sure your character wasn't another person who was sort of fulfilling a stereotype how did you balance that that trailer made me so angry i'm <laughs> so so annoyed at that i think it's um if, as you say you know there's one view that main white audience have of us and it's always about Muslim women in particular, we're oppressed. We're going to get arranged marriages. We love terrorism. It's it's always the same things. I um I went through um, a period where I sought out books by Muslim authors with Muslim protagonists, and it was always those topics. And it really, really got to me, and it made me so angry because that is not our life. You know, no one has. Yeah, I don't think they sort of understand what life is like for Muslims, and it's annoying because I think part of what's to blame is the media in that people keep picking up films like this where it perpetuates that stereotype and you know reality tv shows that um like what was that show it was like muslims like us and it was just it's always terrible and it's so annoying so that was very much that anger <laughs> comes through in my book mm -hmm. in that i really wanted to write a muslim character who is um of faith she is very religious the book starts with her doing her federal players and um it starts with bismillah which i was very very yeah, adamant that I wanted to start with. It makes no sense, but it works. But, um, <laughs> and I think it's very important for... I obviously write for young children, and it, I think it's very important for people like, you know, teenagers and children to see that in books, to normalise it, that people can be religious without it being an issue. I wanted to write a book with a girl who's Muslim and her faith is not part of the plot at all. It's just she is there, she prays, she has faith, she, you know, 
she's just normal and we are just normal people and we need more books like that and this is why I love the sound of your book cover where it is just a Muslim girl wants to do something normal you know it, it's not oh she, you know how can she play basketball with a hijab on oh no it's just she just wants to play basketball and why can't we have your I'm so sorry it makes me so mad <laughs> I feel like you need your own talk show. <laughs> 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 um, you know, I can completely agree with everything you said. I think um, my book is a bit different as it's specifically faith-based. And I think it was because as I was growing up, like you said, um, when my mum would buy me books from sort of Islamic stores and stuff, it just, it, it's not me. And like, does anyone know 10 things... I hate about me. Yeah. If you've if you read that book as a teen, it's just—it's a great book. It's a great book, but for all the wrong reasons. Um, and I think it was really nice to see representation in in some way, but the representation was always either falling into the Western narrative or just existing to sort of counter that narrative. And I feel like both of those ways of operating are very limiting and that binary is one that we have to step out of. I think we have to exist outside of the sort of the structure that they have established in terms of our identity. And with Basira the Basketballer, I think it's just an Islamic book and it's an Islamic book that a child of colour can read and really feel as if, okay, look, that that's just a book and I've learned something from that and it has nothing to do with politics mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with how society has you know established my identity within the media um, and I can exist as me I think that was what was really important for me. Asma you've um, said your bits on the publishing world what do you from essentially working on the inside what do you see as, as your personal role in this whole conversation about representation and stereotypes and things like that? Um, first of all I agree so much. The publishing industry is a bit dire. It's depressing, um, to be quite frank, but it's getting better. Um, sadly, what you're saying about um, people writing about the terrorist narrative, or the girl takes a scarf off and a white boy saves her um, narrative, is everyone thinks it's what's going to sell because the people who make the decisions have this thing called an unconscious bias, which only applies to white people, by the way. <laughs> no one else gets that. Um, which means that what they, they see, um, they, they, they kind of unconsciously will go towards what they think is right or what they r relate to. So unfortunately, a lot of them think that Muslim women are oppressed and that Muslim men are scary. Um, even now, like people I work with sometimes. Um, in, so for example, one of the, in my old job, there was a book called Caliphate, which... Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it makes me so angry. Um, <laughs> the title's changed now, so I could talk about it. Um, but the first thing they did was like, Sma, do you want to read it? Like, oh, I think you would love it. And it's about like this time-traveling terrorist ISIS man who goes back and makes everyone Ottoman... He brings back the Ottoman Empire, and it's exactly what you think, and it's disgusting, and it needs to be put in the bin. But what happens in the publishing house is... If there's only one of you in a meeting, everyone looks at you, and then it's like, oh, as soon as someone says, like, this Muslim character, everyone's like, what do you think? And then it's like, oh, you might have nothing to do with the meeting, or it's nothing to do with you, but they'll just come and like, so I have a, I have a book you love. And it's like, oh, it's about a black person, or, or it's a hijabi, or it's Muslim, or it's like vaguely ethnic. It doesn't have to be like anything I can relate to. Because everyone else is white, so they're just like we've had we've had our great um, diversity read it, so mm. it's great we can we can publish this. Um, so it's I mean, I mean I can go keep going. <laughs> <laughs> keep going oh, I should add, please come work in publishing. <laughs> <laughs> they need more people because 
you need to have a seat at the table to make decisions. Mm -hmm. So if there's more diverse people who work in publishing, they can make choices that will affect the books that are published. Mm -hmm. So if it's only gate if gatekeepers are only white people, we'll, we'll keep seeing the same five books. There's only five, by the way. <laughs> I keep looking, there's only five. So it's, it's important that we work on both sides of the spectrum. Thank you. Thank you. The last <laughs> section I wanted to talk about money. Mm -hmm. um, it's a conversation we often shy away from across industries. Um, I've got another fun fact for you. Uh, so I was I was really shocked to find this out. I was having a conversation with two of my friends who work in publishing and have also been published. And we were just having a really casual chit chat and we got onto the topic of how many books an average book sort of sells. And they said an average book, and tell me if I'm wrong, um, sells about 500 copies. And I was really shocked because I started doing the maths and I was like, where's the money here? Like, what, what's happening? So I wanted to um, start with you, Asma, on can you explain to us where the money is in all of this, how revenues work, how royalties work, what cut do publishers get, what cut do writers get, agents, editors, let's people in the mix, you know. Um, I think that's why it's not as much lots of money because there's so many people, it's a, a whole chain of command, if you want, so many people in the line basically. Um, but two things, if you want to work in publishing, or if you want to get a book published, don't do it for the money, you're going to be broke. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it is obviously some books become bestsellers and the author becomes a one million bestselling author and he make, they make so much money, but that's very rare. Um, books, I think 500 is, I, I think it's a bit more than that. Because mm. okay, publishing wouldn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it depends because, for example, the Puffin, um, you can't sell, we, we try not to publish books that sell 500 copies. Because um, he put so much into it, yeah. so what is illustrated, it might be, it's, it's very expensive to get illustrated books made, so you, you want to get profit at the end of that. Um, but to give you like a, it's kind of complicated, but to give you like a rough idea, um, what will happen when a book comes to the acquisition meeting, why it's so important is what, that's when they decide how much money the book's going to make, and therefore how much money the author will get. So there's a thing called an advance, which few of you might have heard of, but basically the advance is kind of um, very roughly made up of how much books the sales team think they can sell of it, and how much the rights team who go out into the world and sell it to China and Germany, how much they think they can make of it, how much design work is going to need, how much editing is going to need. So authors put on a thing called the P&L, which is a profit and loss sheet. Um, and that, that is basically <laughs> the deciding factor of whether a book gets bought or not. Um, and then, then you get a commodity. So it's calculated by the finance team and it's really long and boring, but right at the end is a thing called the profit margin. So it's basically, are you gonna make profit on this book? And, and that's just calculated because Usually it's based on a similar book. It's based on what the sales team think. And sometimes they might throw the whole paper away and be like, forget it, we'll just publish it. Um, which happens once or twice. That's, that doesn't happen often. The finance team, they don't like you if you do that, but that happens also twice. Um, and then that, then all that's calculated, the advance is given to the author. They don't get it all in one go. It might be, it differs, it always differs. Not two authors will get the same amount. It, there's lots of other factors that play into it. Is it. Are they a debut author? Are they a famous author? Are there other publishers interested? So all these factors will come into it. Um, and then that, that advance is what we think the book will, what we think the book will make. Some of the money that you basically what you later get from the book when it's published is what you paid up front. In royalties. In royalties, yeah. So your, the author gets paid, we buy the book, we work on the book, and then when the book is published, the author will get a thing called royalties, which is like 
um, a percent, like a certain number that was calculated in the contract, a percent of every book sold, you get this much. A percent of every book sold in foreign territory, you get this much. If a book is hard, like, so it's all really like minute detail. Mm. And then the author will get royalties every twice a year, I think it is. Um, and then if they get another book deal, they'll get another advance. So it's kind of, it's not a stable job, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of those passion things, though. <laughs> um, Abby, can you tell us how much, on average, a published author makes? Um, yeah. I think there was um, a report, I can't remember off the top of my head who did it, um, but earlier this year there was a report which said, and I'm really sorry to break this, that the average annual income for writers is £10,000 a year. Um, and then actually it's, it's an interesting piece of, of reporting because it goes into how many people have to have supplementary income, whether that's people who can finance them or other jobs. Um, and sort of what the, the implications of that are for publishing, because if you make it really hard for people to, you know, how do you make this a viable career for people, I suppose is the question. Um, but I think in reality, the amount of money varies massively. Um, just sort of, I'm really glad you explained <laughs> advances and royalties, and I didn't have to. Um, but it, it's, you know, there are so many variables that will determine how much money you make. Um, and that's, you know, that's obviously something an agent will sort of try and navigate with you and explain to you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to round off with a couple more questions and then we're going to take it um, into Q&A. So, Hafsun, Yasmin, you're both working on your second book, Mashallah. Uh, what, do you, what would you do differently for your second book or what have you maybe learned from your first time? So I think that's changed. Um, my answer to this question has changed in the last like 20 minutes um, and it's mostly because um, I was writing the second book and I was like self-publishing seems great but, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry. Okay, so um, yeah so the process that I'm in right now is I'm in the editing stages with an editor so um, I think the thing that I'm going to try to do differently is to actually I don't want to talk about this book I'm going to talk about <laughs> the non-fiction because I feel like that's that's the area where I do need to actually like get it done um I think the thing I'm going to do differently is on my mirror I've got 500 words a day have to be serious um and I have not looked at my mirror since I put it up um and I think one of the things that I have to do is I have to make it a part of my life you were talking about sort of writing groups um, and making sure that you have sort of an area where people can give you feedback and that kind of thing. And I think that from this conversation, I've just realised the importance of that as that was the motivation for me to actually get Basira the Basketballer published in the first place. So I do think writers, we do thrive off of having people read our work mm -hmm. and sort of having discussion about it, whether or not it's positive or negative. So I do think I need to implement that into my life in a structured way. Yeah, so I was talking to um, Asma about this earlier, how book two is just <laughs> the worst thing you'll ever have to do in your life. Uh, I remember being on the other side yeah. of events like this where I was, you know, looking to get an agent and a publisher and thinking, oh, that's it. Once I've got an agent, it'll be it. And then once I've got a book deal, it'll be it. And it just never stops. It's <laughs> always working towards the next thing. And it's so much stress. I'm really sorry putting like new writers off it, but it's so hard to follow up yeah. a book, especially one that, you know, I've... that. My debut I'd had in my head for years and I knew what I wanted to write mm -hmm. and now it's sort of you have to churn it out on demand and mm -hmm. like okay we need a new book idea from you mm -hmm. and it's like oh I don't know what else I want to I'm not one of those writers who has a million ideas it takes me a long time to come up with what I want to write and so that pressure is 
not fun. And I think it's also now you, I was on a one book contract, so um, some people get taken on, on two books or more, so they'll, your publisher will guarantee that they'll publish your next book and they'll discuss it with you. But mine was a one book contract, so um, I had to sort of start from the beginning again and come up with an idea that I could pitch to my editor and she needs to fall in love with it basically and pay me money for it. Um, so that has been going on for over a year, so yeah. that's fun. It's been a process of I've written two whole books and they've said no to both I've written four pitches of new ideas I've said no to everything and I've currently sent them a new one and they've given me the tiniest bit of positive feedback I'm like I will take it I will take it and it's got to the point now where I have lost the will to live and it's it's really disheartening because you come up with these ideas that you think are so special and then they just knock it down and be like, no, sorry. And it's also sort of trying to figure out, I think um, author brand is something that you should think about, is what type of books you publish. Once you publish your first book, they'll want more of the same for you. And luckily for me, that's all I can write. But it's sort of finding something that I'm passionate about, that my editor is passionate about, and that we can both agree on. And it's been very 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 hard so i'm currently doing nanowrimo if anyone's heard of that where you write um fifty thousand words in a month and um i recommend this for you Hoffs, actually i work really well under pressure so if, yeah. if someone says to me you have to write two thousand words today uh, before midnight i will sit down and i will write two thousand yeah. words and it's i it, the thing that motivates me that might work for you is believing that your career will end if you don't write this <laughs> that's genuinely how i've been working it's yeah it's a good it's good oh <laughs> uh, yeah writing is so fun <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to wrap up the panel there, but I'm going to carry on with Q&As. Um, so if anyone has a question, do just put your hand up and we'll take through at a time and then go for it. Thank you. And another two questions. We're going to forget. Yeah. 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 So, as writers, how do you kind of deal with like, the lack of motivation and coming up with titles? Because I find that it's really difficult to do when it comes to my writing. And I actually did an undergrad in creative writing as well, so I did part of um, like my final project was also um, about 15,000 words of an essay. And during that time, I also found it difficult um, in terms of the world building process. So how do you deal with things like that as you're writing your own novels? Thank you. And behind this one more. Um, okay, thank you so much for your talk, for your sharing your insights. Um, so two questions, if that's okay. Uh, the first one is, um, to your point, when you talk earlier, Adam, about mm-hmm. being a non-fiction and fiction kind of pitches, mm-hmm. trying to get an audience to go into the process, is there actually Sharing your ideas and 
Thank you. Uh, so the first one is how much author control is there in the publishing process? Can I start? Um, so one of the things that um, we do as agents is to really sort of help with those decisions about the cover and things like that. And from experience, all authors hate the first version, like the first idea for their cover. Um, I don't know, but th there's usually quite a lot of going back and forth. I think technically, contractually, the publishers have the final decision, but they really want you to be happy with it. So, um, you know, the, the point of finding your publisher who you have that rapport with at the beginning is so that you are involved and that all of those decisions are with your consent and your, your input. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the only thing I would add is that, yes, firstly, everyone in publishing understands this is your baby. You put a lot of work into it. It's you understand, you know the vision for it, you know exactly what you want it to look like. But at the same time, the publishing house will bring so much expertise. They'll, they'll know what title will work. They'll know what cover will work, what, what would sell. They'll know what's, what will sell, basically. Um, so having an, an editor and a team who get what your book is, is really important because they'll back you. But at the same time, don't be too attached to certain things to the book. Because sometimes you can have an amazing title that everyone says, like, oh, no, that's not going to sell. So, and then you have to let go but usually it's not it's not always the case mm. but and and in terms of how much control you have there's a whole process and the author is consulted in everything so in terms of and um, the cover is decided really early on so the book usually gets takes a year to get published <coughs> and decide really early on what roughly the book's going to look like and then the author's consulted and then the, they take it to rough stages or actually even before that the design team will pick people they think will be good and then they'll bring that to the author and then it'll come back again and then you get roughs and then it comes back and then you get fine and then it comes back so then with and and that's every stage of the publishing so that's, i'm giving you a cover as an example because it's an easy thing to explain but with the writing everything about it is you get so much say in it but the only thing is just appreciating that a lot of times people who might say to you change this or that or whatever they they, they say this to you because they also want the book to sell a, a lot. So. Can, I, can I say one one thing just quickly on that? That often when you're meeting publishers before you have a deal, before you have an offer, if they want radical changes to your book, so you know they want to take out a major character or, or radically alter it, they will talk about that before they go to make yeah. you an offer, so yeah. that you're on board with that, so you have you you know what you're getting into effectively. Yeah. Thank you. Can I add an yeah. anecdote? So I just wanted to say, so my cover, I love it, and the, yeah, but as you say, it went through a lot. So the very first cover they showed me, bear in mind, my book is about three girls, one of whom is Muslim. They're all equals, and Muslim girls stands up a little bit more. So the first cover they showed me was... Oh, oh I can already imagine it. Can I, can I show it? I feel like yeah. I need to show it. Um, so it's... Oh, I love telling the story because it's amazing. I feel like I can already see it in my head. So, <laughs> yes, I thought so. Yeah, so it's um, a picture of a Muslim girl, her face... Um, with a scribble across her mouth and eyes closed, so basically an oppressed Muslim. And I was just like, literally, what are you thinking? <laughs> and um, luckily my agent was very good in this, and I emailed her saying, I hate this so much. <laughs> and I was like, it's, it's quite offensive in a way, like, and I think this reflects yeah. back on white publishing, that they think things like that is okay. And so luckily we got it changed, and they were very understanding, but it took a lot. Mm. Thank you. I'm going to group two of the questions together around um, motivation of writing. So the question was, how do you deal with a lack of motivation and coming up with titles and plots? And also, um, how 
do you feel about working in isolation and does that contribute to lack of motivation? Yeah, so I think there's a time for everything. With me, sometimes I'm like really, really motivated and I'll like plan my day from the morning and I'll be like, I'm gonna go to the coffee shop and I'm gonna spend 12 hours at my laptop and I'm just gonna write, um, write. Um, and you know, with the times that I don't feel motivated, I my focus will be on a smaller chapter of the book or just refining certain areas rather than working on building a storyline or as it's a non-fiction, doing a load of research and sort of um, trying to relate it to the book. So I think it just, everyone's different. I think when you do have those moments where you don't want to write, it depends on how frequent you have that. If it's like a thing where you've gone for months and you haven't done anything, I think that's a lot deeper than just you not wanting to write. There's a reason that you don't want to write. Is it that you're not happy with what you've been writing? Is it that you um, you don't have faith in your storyline or in what you're writing anymore? And I think with that, you have to look a bit deeper and sort of um, ask yourself the hard questions and really try to get to the root as to why you're not writing. But if it's a thing where you've just like gone a week and like you've been Netflixing and chilling instead of like, writing I think sometimes it's nice to have that ability to just take your mind away from the writing because when you do look at it with fresh eyes you'll normally have um sort of more of an idea of what you want to do yeah I completely agree with that and I think don't feel bad about watching yeah. Netflix because 100%. it's all it's like research basically you can, <laughs> you can pass that off I think um in terms of motivation I have a very tough time with it and I don't write for months on end but as I said earlier I tell myself my career is going to end if I don't write this book I think um, deadlines are very good if yeah. you set yourself I set myself very tight deadlines and I write like a maniac and I get it done but I think find something that's suitable for you and daily workout 500 words if you can look in the mirror and do that, then it's you know find something that works for you yeah. and just keep um keep going at it I think um there's this theory that if you do something enough times in a row so every day for enough times in a row it becomes a good habit and so little stickers I find help so if you write 100 words a day give yourself a little sticker and you know whatever you can do to keep yourself motivated in terms of um, writing in isolation I love it <laughs> I am an introvert and I love being alone yeah. so I yeah <laughs> I think um, but I think also um, as I say my writer friends do help a lot so when things are bad I'll be like what do you think of this or that and if you don't have that people I think the internet can be a great place so there's so many writers on Twitter that you can find and ask mm -hmm. them for their opinion don't be afraid to just slide into people's DMs and be like help me writers are lovely people you know I'm, I did that to a lot of writers when I was starting. Thank you. Um, before I ask the last question, uh, some of you might have got an index card handed out to you by Selena, who's my wonderful co-founder and sister, um, and she wanted everyone to take the index card and basically write the either the title for the book that you're going to write or the idea of the book that you're going to write and just drop it on the table on the way out. Um, oh, you want to give it to me? I'll will be published I guarantee that. You can choose to take it or you can choose to maybe take a photo and share it with us or do whatever you want with it. Um, but that was a little fumbling from Selena. So the last question was, um, what's the difference between submitting fiction and non-fiction? Yeah, so um, it's worth looking, shameless plug, but our website, the Good Literary Agency, has a lot of detail on what we're looking for, which is quite similar to what a lot of agents will. So we've tried to kind of demystify that. Um, but I'll, I'll keep it simple. With um, fiction, with a novel, most agents will want you to have written the whole thing. Uh, before you send it and they'll normally ask for three chapters 
Um, and if they like those, if they want to know more, they'll, they'll call in the full manuscript. So it's really great if you've got that ready so you can kind of act on that enthusiasm. It, we're not expecting perfection, but I think you need to have written it to a stage where you feel really happy to share it. But we, we're expecting something that we're going to give kind of editorial feedback on and, and all of that. So, so don't feel it has to be this kind of perfect thing. Um, non-fiction, um, a proposal normally, so the key components of that, they're all on our website, but it's um, why this book, why you, why now, um, your biography, your credentials, um, a sample of your writing, ideally from the start of the book, uh, an overview of the chapters, so how you um, imagine the structure of the book, and then some titles that you think give a good impression of sort of how it compares to other books on the market that you think um, are a good sort of, that, that sort of set the tone. Brilliant, thank that you. Uh, one last thing, just one really quick tip um, for honing your writing. From us? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to say two very obvious things, but read a lot, read a lot. Um, especially, <laughs> but it's, it works. Cause, mm -hmm. Um, I think if you, a lot of writers know what they want to write, they know what kind of, like, the vibe, if you will, of the book, read around that, so you know exactly what's out there, you know what works, um, knowing the market of your book is so valuable, and the second thing is write a lot, like, the first writing it to you might not be good, but just keep writing, and also, a really, a thing I shouldn't say out loud is that sometimes things that are submitted aren't that good, but they get published. So <laughs> it's not, it's not always the writing. <laughs> it's like, I mean, wait, I mean, the concept is great, and then you hone it. So it is. Don't, don't let yourself, don't like, um, let writing hold you back. If you have a great story to tell, tell it, and then everything else can get figured out later on. But that's. The two things I'll say. Yeah, and, and I'm going to shamelessly plagiarise you and say what you said <laughs> earlier, which is that you have to write what you want to write and, and not be too, not let yourself be too dictated to by what you think the market wants, because we can tell it has to come from the heart. Um, and, and also to, to have your support networks around you to get your, you know, whether it's an agent or whether it's just writers groups, just people that you can get some really constructive feedback from. You've just taken all of this. <laughs> I always say that I hate writing advice because it makes you feel like you have to do this or else you won't succeed. And so I very rarely give out of advice. But um, you'd think having two MAs, I'd have something to say about how to write. Um, I think what helped me a lot is um, reading other work and critiquing it. So saying what you like about what you're, what you're reading and what you don't like. And try and a friend of mine um, does these exercises where she tries to mimic the voice of these books to sort of get in the spirit and see if she can do it. And I find that amazing that she can do that because it's very hard. But just, yeah, to read, sorry, to copy. Um, I would say um, believe in your ability to tell the story that you're currently thinking of. I think once you have that self-belief, just allow that to direct you and carry you through all of the ups and downs that you're definitely going to go through. Um, but yeah, just believe in your story and your ability to tell it. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time this evening and all the nuggets. I'm sure we're going to hear loads of stories in like a year telling us that you've got an agent, that you're getting published with Penguin, yes. of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, thank you so much for coming out tonight and peace. <laughs>
of you are sticking around, um, so do have a conversation, get your book deal. And um, do help yourself to drinks at, at the back, and we're going to be around for another about 20 minutes and then head out. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.